Well, Sunday is a joyful day, and today we are going to continue in Ruth, our, our journey through the book of Ruth, a short book. You may have to look in the index of your Bible to find that book, but this has been, I, I don't know, I just decided I'd like to preach from the book of Ruth, and what a joy when you start diving into the Word of God to see all of the richness of what is there. I want to give you a little bit of background if you weren't with us last week so you're not totally lost as to where we are and what's going on. But there is a group of people uh, in this story. And the story begins with a man named Elimelech, a Jew, married to a woman named Naomi. And the nation of Israel falls under a period of famine. And they have to leave the nation and they go to Moab, a country uh, next door, a country to the east, to find food during a period of famine. And they take their two sons, Malon and Chilion, with them to this country. And while they're there, Elimelech dies in that country. And the two sons marry, uh, a woman named Orpah and another woman named Ruth. But then the two sons also die over a period of about 10 years. And they are left with three widows, Naomi, the mother-in-law, and the two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And Naomi tells him, go back to your people, go, go back to your land, like this is just, there's no future here with me. And Orpah does, she goes out, but Ruth clings to Naomi and pledges herself to Naomi in love and loyalty, and together they return to Bethlehem, the hometown of Naomi, and they arrive there during the time of the barley harvest, is where we end in chapter 1, verse 22. And so the theme of our, of our day today is how these two poor women trust the Lord with their lives. There, there is no other safety net here. They are trusting the Lord with their lives. They live in virtue, and then we're going to also see a lot about hard work today, about how Ruth dives in, trusting the Lord in faith to work and do what God's called her to do. So let's read together from Ruth chapter 2 this morning. If you would please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word. And I'm going to read for us from Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. She had happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young men, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early in the morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boab said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink that the young men have drawn. Verse 10, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? 
But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Verse 13. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here, eat some bread, dip your morsel into the wine. And she sat beside the reapers and he passed her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, do not reproach her. And also, pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Beside, he had said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Verse 23, So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All right, Ruth. Well, let's set some context here. Um, We've got a lot of reaping and gleaning and harvesting, and we don't have a whole lot of farmers in this audience. So let's talk a little bit about reaping and gleaning, and especially from the Old Testament. So Ruth comes in to this situation dirt poor. She has absolutely nothing. I, I believe even from what we see here when she is joining them for lunch, she doesn't even bring lunch to this situation. She just comes to work hard because this is what is before her. But the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Lord God makes provision for the poor. And in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, the rules that the Lord lays down for provision of the poor partly relates to this reaping situation. And the, the rules are this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. So as you drop some of this, leave it laying on the field. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. When the Lord says something like that at the end, I am the Lord your God, he's bringing his, his weight to this. Do not forget the poor. Do not gather everything that's available on the field and leave nothing. A part of the way the poor are to provide for themselves in this situation is to come out and work and for something to be left for them to gather around the edges and that which has fallen behind. 
And so Ruth knows this, and she has come providentially during the time of the harvest, of the barley and the wheat harvest. God's requirement is to leave something for the poor. And how do we carry this over into the New Testament? Because this is very, very important that we not lose sight. In the New Testament, the needs of the poor are to be met by the joyful generosity and sacrifice of others in the church. We have a beautiful example of this in the New Testament church where those that are in need, the people of the church see those needs, they love those people, and they joyfully sacrifice of what they have so that the needs might be met in the church. They do not turn a hard heart towards the poor. They do not ignore the poor. They do not shame the poor. Instead, the church gathers around those in its midst and meets the needs of the poor. And in our church, it should be no less. I have been a part of churches where benevolence and care for the the needs, the actual needs of the poor in the church was completely neglected. And it seriously bothered me. And it should bother you. We must care about the people that are in this fellowship that have needs because you have no idea when that's going to also come to you. And you are going to be in need of other brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so two ways that we try and strive to be like the early church is to both care for needs in our congregation financially and with our own hands. And so one of the first um, designated funds that we set up in this church was a benevolence fund. And if you don't know that, you can give at any time in a designated way to the benevolence fund in this church. And the benevolence fund in this church is used to meet the financial needs of people in this congregation and in the sphere of this congregation. And I am glad and I rejoice in what has happened through this fund. Through this fund, we've been able to buy people cars. We put a roof on somebody's house. We have done all kinds. We've paid medical bills. All kinds of things have been done. And many more things are going to be done in the future. And all of that has come through the generosity of this church, seeking to to love and meet the needs of other people in this church. I'm going to let the fire truck go by here. All right. But beyond finances is the use of our own hands because each one of these needs, though they were given financially by people in the church, we went out and did these things. And so people took time. One of the projects that we did recently was such a joy to me to see men, women, boys, girls, teenagers, all kinds of people out working together to meet a need in the church, and it happens regularly. I just thank God for our deacons. They lead the charge on this and putting together projects, identifying needs, and then coordinating you, the people of the church, to go and help other people in this church. And it matters that some stranger doesn't show up to meet the need, but you, you show up to meet the needs of other people in this church. And so I'm going to make a a plea here. Travis is going to come up a little bit later. But this is the service ministry of the church, and I want you to sign up. There's not a person here whose name shouldn't be available and willing to do something for another person in this church. And what the deacons do is as they identify needs, they then call people in the church to help them with that need, and then we go and meet that need. And so come when Travis is up here at the end, put your name on this list, make yourself available to go and help someone else in a time of need. And so this is just a little bit about the meeting the needs of the poor. And because we're going to see Boaz here, Boaz is able 
financially, and he has the heart to do this because he's a godly man, and he meets a need that is here. So let's look at Boaz. Boaz, in verse 1, is described in a powerful way. Verse 1, now Naomi was a, had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. A worthy man. King James Version translates this, a mighty man of wealth, the NIV, a man of standing. The Old Testament word here can go in a lot of different directions because it encompasses a person that is of great righteousness, godliness, a person that is above reproach, a person that is hardworking, a person that is valiant, a person that is respected, a person that is a good citizen, and you kind of roll all this into one great word, and the word that is chosen by the translators here is a, a worthy man. And that is a powerful way to describe a person. This is a brief summary of, Mo, of Boaz's life. When we go to the New Testament, I can't read that without it immediately taking me to the New Testament because Paul uses this same word to describe the way that you and I ought to live as Christians. And he uses it five times in the New Testament. I'm going to read one of those verses from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called in Christ Jesus. That we ought to live a life that is worthy of the calling, the high calling, he says in another passage, that we have in Christ Jesus. He says basically the same thing to the Philippians, to the Colossians, and twice to the Thessalonians. That we are to live our lives worthy in Christ Jesus. We are to live consistent with the will and the commands of God. That we are to live righteous and godly and virtuous lives. That we are to be hardworking, that we are to be honest, that we are to be courageous, that we are to be good citizens. And that together, when we come together as the church, all of us seeking to live in this way, that the church glorifies God in a city, in the place where they are, because we live lives that are worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. May it be said of us that if someone were to describe us, that they would be able to describe us in this way. And this is a, I'm going to focus here for a minute on Boaz as a man, but hang on here because you're going to see Ruth is described in the exact same way, in the exact same word later on. But it is impossible to overstate the need of worthy men to lead our society. Boaz was a leading man in that society, a respected man. We're going to see it more as the story goes on. And you cannot overstate the need for worthy men in society. And when the, when the world or the society that you live in loses men that are characterized by these things, it will result in the downfall of that society. When we look to Israel itself, when the Lord wanted to reestablish the nation of Israel, he brought two worthy men to bear to lead the people. We talked about that some months ago with Ezra and Nehemiah two different types of giftings, two different roles. Nehemiah as a, as a government organizational leader, Ezra as a, as a spiritual leader of the people. And I would say that if we look at the founding of our own country, we see something very similar to that. We see worthy, godly men leading 
Certainly not all of them were, just like they are not anywhere, but we see worthy, God-fearing people that played key instrumental roles in the forming and foundation of this country, and we continue to enjoy the effect of that today. If we look at the same sort of dichotomy of government and, and the church, we see George Washington, John Witherspoon, and a long list of other people that were worthy men. They, it could be described in many of the same ways as Boab is, Boaz is described here. Leaders in the church, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and a long list of others that served and poured out their lives in a worthy manner to, to affect the people that they lived around. And the blessings that we have enjoyed in this country for hundreds of years did not come about by chance. And that's one of the things I want you to grasp. Boaz's life is not lived by chance and happenstance. He is purposefully seeking after the Lord. And the blessings that we have enjoyed in this country for hundreds of years did not come about by chance. The blessing soon to come to Ruth does not come to her by chance. It comes by a God-fearing, virtuous man. But again, I don't want you to think that this is something reserved for men. It is not at all. If you look in Ruth, uh, Ruth chapter 3, verses 11, Boaz describes her in the same exact way. And it's very interesting that that same word is used of a woman who has no financial wealth. So this is not related to your financial standing. This is related to the virtue of your heart. And so she was the, the counterpart to him, if you will, in the virtuous way that she lived. And we're going to see more of that come out in our passage today, partly as Boaz himself praises her for her virtue. And the, the eye of this man is caught by someone who herself is a virtuous, God-fearing, righteous woman. So if we go to verse 2, we see that worthy Ruth goes out to glean the work of the poor that I have mentioned before. She knows that there will be something left in these fields because of the command of the Lord. And she goes out in verse 2 seeking favor, praying that she would find favor in the eyes of someone that there might be enough for them to eat. Seeking God's favor is to ask for the blessing of the Lord when circumstances are out of your hands. I'm going to say that again. Seeking God's favor to ask for blessing in circumstances that are out of your hands. Every single one of us go into the workplace or out into the day each day with things that are out of our hands. And it is right for us to ask for favor from the Lord. God, grant me favor today that as I go and do what I am going to do by faith, that you will open a door, that you will be with me in what I am doing and help me in what I am doing. It's right to ask for that. We see it all over the lives of people in the Bible. We see it in Joseph. We see it in Daniel. We see it in Ruth, and we especially see it in David where David and all the confusing parts of the early things going on in his life, he keeps going back to God. God, be with me. Show, what should I do? Should I go here? Should I go there? I'm going to go there. Be with me in what I do. And over and over, the scripture says the Lord was with him. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Daniel. The Lord is with Ruth. And it's unmistakable from all of these stories that the reason why all this is coming together is because the Lord is in it. And so it is right for us to pray and seek the favor of the Lord. I will tell you that I have done this countless, I, all through my life. God, I, this is out of my hands. Like, I can't, I can't make this happen. Will you grant favor to me in this situation? 
as I go into this interview, as I go into this selection, as I go before this, this board, whatever it is, God, would you give me favor here? Would you grant me favor? And the Lord has, according to his will, granted me so much favor that I did not deserve, so much grace that I did not deserve. But what I did is I tried to do, and what I'm going to urge you today is that you follow in the same pattern of each one of these godly people, and that is that we pray, we seek favor, and then we do what? We go to work. We go and we work, and that's what Ruth does. She prays, she seeks favor, and then she goes to work. So we're going to camp out here for a little bit, and we're going to talk about the virtues of hard work. In verse 3, it, I'm going to go some of these verses to lay out how her work day goes because she just goes and she just starts gleaning. And we get the sense there's a great big pasture or a series of fields because it says in verse 3 that she happened to come to the field belonging to Boaz. She didn't know where Boaz's fields was. She didn't go to Boaz's field. She went and she started working. And she ended up, by the providence of God, in Boaz's field. And how many of you here that have lived a few years know that you just started working and sought God's favor, and then before you knew it, you ended up in a place that you didn't expect to be, and you were blessed by the Lord because of someone that you happened to come across. And this is exactly what is happening in this woman's life. In verse 7, Boaz takes note of her and asks one of his workers, Hey, what's going on here? Like, who is this young woman? And this person says, well, she's been here. This is, this is uh, the Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And as we're going to see, the story is known. But he says, she's been here since early in the morning and has been working pretty much nonstop all day. And the way she is described here in her work is impressive to Boab. He takes note of her. It's impressive to us. You think about somebody out there working hard in the harvest all day long. Verse 17, which is the end of the day, she takes a break, as we're going to see with Boaz and the other people, to eat during mealtime, but then goes back out to the field and keeps working, as it says in verse 17, until the evening, which I would say is until dark. Like, you can't work out here anymore because it's too dark. And gathers up all the stuff, all, the, all that she has harvested, and then keeps working. Goes back by some type of moonlight or lamplight or candlelight and starts threshing out this barley and threshes it out until she has got an ephah of barley. An ephah is 22 liters or approximately 6 gallons. Everybody here knows how, how much a 5-gallon bucket is plus a gallon. That's how much barley she's got at the end of the day from having picked up one stalk at a time and then gone back and threshing that stuff out until she's got something to bring home at the end of the day. I want to urge you in a number of ways related to hard work. We all, men, women, boys, girls, teenagers, we all have a role of work. Work is important. We each one have different skills and talents and abilities that we are given. And we are each called to work in different places and different settings. But we are all called to work. In work, we find purpose and we find meaning. Unfortunately, work has been pressed to the side in our culture somehow. I think it's part of the godlessness of our culture that we think that we're going to find purpose and meaning in entertainment, and you will not find it there. You will find yourself empty and longing to go back to what? To meaningful, purposeful work. In, in meaningful, purposeful work, we find the plan that the Lord has for us, and in it, we will have our needs met. And so the Proverbs in the Bible talks all the time about work. 
And so I want to go to the Proverbs a little bit. There's these two characters that are contrasted in the Proverbs. One is the sluggard, and the other one is the hard worker. And so if we look at the Proverbs and the sluggard, uh, we have, I'm going to go to Proverbs chapter 6, verse first. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Classic here. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways, be wise, so that the sluggard and the ant are contrasted with each other. The ant is working hard. The ants have been working hard in my house lately. They're able to find every single crumb that hits the floor, and I've been chasing those guys around. I can't ever seem to stop them. But go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. That's a powerful verse. And it's pressing us to work. Meet your needs through hard work. In Proverbs 20, verse 4, it says this, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn, He will seek at harvest, and he will have what? Nothing. So when you do not prepare, it talks about getting ahead, working ahead, strategizing, planning, all of this is hard work, and by it, our needs are provided. If we look to the hard worker, we can look to Proverbs chapter 12, verses 11. Proverbs 12, 11 says this, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. I'll let you fill in the blank for the worthless pursuits. And before you point fingers at your teenager or somebody else, you got to point the finger back at yourself too. What's going on in your own life? What is it? What's going on in your own life that you know is absolutely worthless and is keeping you from work that the Lord would have you to do that is purposeful and meaningful? Lastly, let's look at Proverbs 16, 3. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. We see this directly happening in the life of Ruth in this passage. She and Naomi commit their plans to the Lord, and your plans, their plans, are established as the Lord works in an unforeseen way in their life. I'd like to give you four things, four notes on work as a Christian that I think are very important. And our work as Christians are, is different than, our, than the work of the unbelieving world. And so four notes on work as a Christian. The first is this. As we see right here in Proverbs 16.3, commend yourself to God and do not fear failure. Commend yourself to God and do not fear failure. So many people, especially in middle age, I find will not strive to keep working and pressing towards what the Lord may have for them because they're afraid of failing. And usually that fear of failure is a fear of what other people will say about you if everything doesn't go just right. And often this fear will keep us from pressing out. But I can tell you just from personal experience, I have never accomplished anything in my life from being the best or the smartest or the fastest. I am not the best at anything. All I do is I just try to keep doing what the Lord has before me. I commit myself to the Lord. I 
genuinely and true i just ask god have favor on me help me in this i got a family i need to provide for i'm trying to do what you would have me to do and somehow the lord opens the door one after the other and so we should commit ourselves to the lord and we should not fear what the lord what the world would put up before us as failure it's very important it shows our faith in seeking work by faith secondly your work must not be just self-seeking Your work must not be just self-seeking. The world is extremely selfish in their work. I've worked, I earn money, I get to spend this on me because it's my money and I worked for it. That is a heart of selfishness. Is that what we see in the work of Ruth? Why Why is Ruth out here working this hard? She's not just out here working for herself. She's out here working to take something home for her poor elderly mother in law who she has no actual blood tied to. She just loves this woman, is committed to this woman, and is going to work hard to make sure that their needs are met. And so our work always has someone else attached to it, whether it be a family, whether it be children, whether it be someone else in the church, whether it be some other family member, a neighbor, there is always someone else involved. Ephesians 4, 28 says this, Do not steal, but work, so that you might have something to give that you might always look to someone else who is in need, even if they're not right in your sphere of, of, of influence, that you look for someone else that you might be able to give to. So second, our work must not simply be self-serving. Third, do not be too proud to accept lowly work, especially manual labor. I'm going to say that again. Do not be too proud to accept lowly work, especially manual labor. What do we see in Ruth? How is her work going here? She goes out and takes the lowest place. She's not ashamed to be known as the poor person that needs to to reap amongst the poor people. She is out there sweating, getting her hands dirty, and working all day long to see that her needs are met. And she considers it a mercy from the Lord because there's something there that will provide her needs. And I tell you, It is a pattern, it's a sad pattern in our country now that people are unwilling to work unless a whole bunch of conditions are met. That this job's going to be fun, or this job's going to be what I've always been looking for, or the people there are nice, or or, or the big one that just drives me crazy is they're not going to pay me what I think I'm worth, so I'm not going to work there. And There's much that could be said here, but there's a long list of excuses as to why not go and work hard. And instead, people are withdrawing from work. We're going to get to that in a moment. There's a reason why they're withdrawing from work. But I can tell you that every successful person that I know started low. They started low, and they were willing to work whatever needed to be worked in order to make things happen. I myself have worked as a dishwasher, I've worked as a cook over a gas range in a big restaurant. I, that, I hated that job, I really did. But I needed that job at that point in time in order to make the ends meet, and the Lord provided it. During a period of time, during my doctoral program, I worked as a night janitor and uh, had to go do it. And I thank God for it. We prayed like we needed something else. It was a second job. And that's what the Lord provided. And then we thank God for it. And you know what it did? It met our needs. And it kept us going in the direction that the Lord had for us and brought us to this day right here. 
If you're a younger person, you go ask any older person in this congregation, you're going to find that they have a story just like that too. That they were willing, they got down on their knees and they asked God for favor and a way forward. And what the Lord provided for them was not really what they were asking for. But they went and they took it and they worked. And in that, the Lord met their needs. And it was a part of what he used to press them forward in life. And so I tell you again, do not be too proud to accept lowly work, especially work that is manual labor. So the fourth thing goes back to what I was talking about before. How is it that there are so many people that can stand on the sidelines waiting for a fun, filling, high-paying job before they're going to get in the workplace? It's because they're looking for the government first to meet their needs And one of the things that we should not miss here is that Ruth does not look first to the government to meet her needs. She looks first to the work of her own hands, and then she's going to end up looking to family and then to other godly people. And that's the same exact progression that we see in the New Testament, that the first place that we should look for the meeting of needs is the work of our own hands. And then we should look to family, and then we should look to the church. And the last place that we should look for the meeting of our needs is charity from the government. And so Ruth did not appeal to government, but appealed to God and went to work. So the... uh, some people act like there's a pie in the sky or that's something silly. Oh, I appeal to God for the meeting of my needs. Are you serious? Yes, I'm completely serious. Appeal to God and ask God for an open door of opportunity. And when the door is open because he loves you, he will open a door. Go and get to work. So many people pass on job after job. And as they do, their dependence on the government deepens. What I want from you is I want your dependence on God to deepen. I want you to see that God is faithful. And as you get on your knees and as you ask him to meet your needs and the doors are open and you walk through those doors and you work hard, that you find that God is faithful and he meets your needs and then you glorify your father who is in heaven instead of the government. Well, there is strong New Testament standing for this as well. I want to read to us from 2 Thessalonians um, 3.10. Let me just a second here. I forgot to mark it here. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 is extremely important. Now right, we got another cop going by. Hope we don't have something terrible going on. In 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul, after giving himself as an example, writes these very clear words. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not at work, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. That is a very, very clear passage, folks. And twice he uses the word command and brings in the authority of the Lord, and he is pressing us to work, to not be busy bodies, which is someone that looks like they're busy, but nothing's being produced, versus an actual hardworking person working quietly, earning our own living. Well, I understand, and I want to point out clearly that there are qualifications to this. I understand that there are those who are disabled. There are those that are elderly, and they cannot fully engage in this. I am not speaking to that exception. I'm speaking to the rule. We don't govern our lives by the exception. We govern our lives by the rule, and then we make exceptions by mercy and by grace. But I want to look at the rule, 
And so I hope this comes across clearly to you today because Ruth is a very, very important example of God-fearing hard work in the Bible. And the, the Bible gives us the background so that we can see how these things come together to produce a good end. So to refocus on Ruth here, we have a widowed, dirt-poor foreigner that could be sitting at home in absolute despair, but instead is seeking God's favor, is working hard, is waiting on the Lord, and is doing her very best to see ends meet. So when we go on in verse 8, Boaz addresses Ruth after hearing this report of her hard work. And he says, stay in my fields. And he charges his men to protect her and to watch over her. As we see in verse 22, Naomi rightly understands what's going on here. The book of Judges was a violent and wild time, and that is going to protect her from assault. She doesn't have anything to steal, so we would assume that this would be protecting her from sexual assault. He's going to give her water to drink, and all of this is what? is favor from the Lord. She was praying for favor from the Lord. Here's favor from the Lord. I'm going to open the door wide. Come to the field every day. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to give you water. This is favor. And she says in Thanksgiving, why have I found favor? Who, who am I? I'm a foreigner. I'm nothing. You don't, even, you don't even know me. Why would you be favor? Why would you have favor towards me? And then Boab, Boaz lets the cat out of the bag. And the reason why is that her virtuous life has what? has gone before her. Her reputation for godliness has preceded her. She's been the talk of the town. Who is this woman that would sacrifice so greatly, love so deeply, and work so hard for someone that she has no actual obligation to? And so Boaz says in verse 11, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land. And he is admiring her for her worthy nature as a godly woman. And this godliness goes before her and opens the door for favor from the Lord. Ruth is poor, but she has a powerfully godly reputation. And I want to read one more proverb today, which is Proverb 22.1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver and gold. Young people, every, really everybody, but especially young people, I don't know what you aspire to, but I encourage you, aspire to have a good name, a godly name that is above reproach, for a good name is better than great riches. And Ruth has a worthy and good name. So Boaz is a man of standing and of personal accomplishment in all that he has done. He is impressed by Ruth. And he blesses her and prays for her in verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What a beautiful picture that she has commended herself to the Lord in all of her inability. And she has come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord. And he is watching over her. And we'll see that Boaz also begins to see himself as one who should be also protecting her and watching over her. Well, in verse 14, he invites her to join the meal with the reapers, and they're all sitting around there taking a break and eating together, and he gives her a large lunch, more than she can eat. But after eating, they go back out, and he says in verse 15 something interesting after she heads out. Hey, hey, let's hold up for a minute here. 
let her glean even among the sheaves and, and pull some out and leave it on the ground for her so that she can have a little bit extra. And don't, don't bother her. Let, her. let her do that. And so it's even more favor. So after having lunch, like this is a person I want to support. And every single one of us know that. When you get around somebody that's in need and you see virtue and you see hard work and you see godliness, what do you want to do with that person? You want to help that person. You want to do everything that you can to help that person. That's exactly what we see here in this passage, and that's a righteous and a good thing. So as we said earlier, she finishes her gleaning, she threshes out her barley, and she returns home. Now this is uh, verse 18, is a great verse, a verse that you moms will just love. This is the uh, biblical theology of leftovers. So what do we have here in verse 18, 18b? We have that uh, Ruth did not eat all of her lunch, and so she brought it home, and she brought the rest of her leftovers home to give to um, Naomi. What do we have here? It's not, it's not theology of leftovers, it's frugality. And f- being frugal goes together with hard work. Why does being frugal and hard, why do those two things go together? Because when you get out there and you work hard to bring something home, you don't easily throw it in the trash. You want to figure out, what can I do with this? Because I got to go out and I got to work hard to bring this back again again tomorrow. And so you become frugal with the things that you have. And she is doing this. She cares about Naomi and she brings back extra, but it also shows her love and selflessness for Naomi. That she didn't throw it away at that time. She thought, you know what, maybe Naomi would want this. I'm going to put this aside for her, thinking about others always in her life. But in verses 19 through 22, we have Naomi sizing up the situation, praises God for Boaz's generosity, identifies him as a redeemer, and she presses Ruth to keep going down this path. And she does. She stays for both of the harvests, the the barley harvest, the wheat harvest, and we assume that she continues working in this same way during these two harvests. Well, I want to close with this. And it's a, it's a point that I think is, is very important, and it's an indirect point that comes out of what we have here. There's a spoiler alert here for those of you that don't know this story. These two are going to get married here soon in this story. I'll let Justin tell you about that next week. But what we have in this passage is the two of them beginning to notice each other. And why do they notice each other? They begin to notice each other because of their mutual godliness and the righteousness of their hearts. And both of them independently are seeking after the Lord. Boaz is living in his way, doing what he is called to do as a righteous man. And Ruth is doing what she is called to do, living as a righteous woman. And how do the two of them intersect in their lives? It's not by just seeking out another person. It's by doing what God would have them to do. And as they both seek and honor the Lord, their lives intersect. And then from that point, they go on to live together. And I think this is a very powerful point in our day and age, especially for single people that are seeking someone to marry. Where are you going to find this person? Where are you going to find another godly person? You're primarily going to find that other godly person by living the way that God would have you to live, fully giving yourself to the the service and honor of the Lord, being active, involved in the way that the Lord would have you to live. And in that way, you will find another godly person. I know that's exactly how I met my wife, and it, it encompasses the stories of countless Christian people, and we see it developing here. Perhaps you have already long been married and your marriage is just not what it should be. 
I think this also has something to say to us there because the way in which you bring harmony in a marriage that is struggling is to both go together towards the Lord. That is the number, there's a lot of counseling that can go into that, but at the end of the day, when the two of you set your heart upon Jesus Christ and seek after him with passion and great service and activity, you will find yourselves coming together to serve the Lord in a joint way that will bring you together. And so this is just so many lessons from this story. This story, as I said last week, is a story of ordinary people living their lives by faith in God, and it has been recorded for your encouragement, for your hope, and for your instruction. And so I hope something from this has been helpful to you today. Let's bow and pray. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you Uh, for this morning. This is such an instructive passage, and I thank you for including it in your word that we might see the lives of Boaz and Ruth and get some behind the scenes of why they were doing what they were doing and how they were doing what they were doing and the hearts that they had for you and the way that you provided for them and the way that you brought them together and the way that you did a good work in the midst of the lives of ordinary people to accomplish your eternal purposes. I pray, Father, you would help us to learn from these things and that above all things, we would cast ourselves upon your mercy. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.